invite you to take your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. If you're using a Bible there in front of you, it's page 587. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 of Isaiah 41. We're continuing on our series called, a series about the key of promise or key called promise. It's actually a title that is taken from a scene in the book of Pilgrim's Progress uh, where Christian and Hopeful are thrown into the dungeon of Doubting Castle, being beat up and tortured by giant despair. And at that moment, they remember in their pocket that they have the key called knowledge. It is actually the key of promise. And they take that, that, they take that key that is called promise. It opens all the doors to their prison, and it's a, it's a picture of what God does, that he uses his promises as the means to give liberty for the hopelessness of dark, dangerous, discouraging times in his children's lives. This is a series focusing on some of the powerful uh, promises of God throughout the scriptures. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we began uh, looking at this passage in Isaiah 41, verse 10 through 13. And I'd like to look at that again, the promise particularly in verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise, this promise to those who are afraid that you will strengthen us, that you will help us. Lord, you look into the hearts of everybody in this room, everybody that's watching online this morning, and you see the seeds that are there that may just be in seed form of fear. You see people that are deeply bound by fear and everybody in between. God, I pray that we might learn from this passage this morning that you might embolden our faith that you might deepen our love and trust of you because of these moments we spend together this morning, please. In Jesus' name, amen. In our first study on Isaiah 41, verse 10, which is a promise directed to those who are afraid, I highlighted the first part of the sermon just showing how everybody deals with fear, whether it is fear of people's opinion, fear of failure, fear of danger, physical danger, or a host of other things, including FOMO, the fear of missing out. Uh, All of those are fears that people struggle with. And this is a promise that is relevant to every human being. And we looked last time at the first part of the promise that God gives in this verse. And in the verse, it actually has two parts where it says, first of all, I will strengthen you, which meant Inner internal empowerment. We need internal empowerment. We need God to give us courage. But secondly, there are times when we do not have the capacity, even when we're strengthened from within, even though we've got boldness, even though we've got confidence, trust God, there are still things that are out there that are fearsome things 
that we need God to fight for us. And that's the second part of this. It is a word that is usually associated with military aid. God says, not only will I strengthen you from within, but externally, I will fight for you. I will help you. This, to me, is an incredibly practical portion of Scripture. And I'd like to look this morning at the second of those phrases, I will help you, trying to answer two questions. First of all, what help does God promise And secondly, how do we secure God's help? Now, I'm going to say at the beginning what I'm going to do. I'm going to do more. I'm going to jump to more different biblical stories than I normally do, and I'm doing this by design. I'm going to passages which use the word help. I've studied this over the last few weeks. All the passages that use the word help in the the Old Testament, and there are some famous stories where God says, this is an example of my helping people. And I'm, I'm trying through those stories to just remind us of what God means when he says he will help us in times that feel foreboding, that are fearful. How do, what does God's help mean? What does God promise us? There are three primary things. First of all, God promises to give us perspective. This is the whole context of Isaiah 41. As a matter of fact, he he talks about giving this perspective through divine revelation as he talks about through the prophet Isaiah. He's giving them a message, and the message is one that even in the midst of the most turbulent times, I will strengthen you, and I will help you, he says. This particular scene where we are reading Isaiah 41, God is alluding to the fact that they are in the midst of a world of total turbulence. It is a world of of chaotic upheaval. He references in verse 3 when he refers to the one from the east, Cyrus. Uh, In other passages, he identifies him specifically by name. Cyrus the Great was the founder of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had just uh, received dominance in the ancient Near East. They had defeated the long-standing Babylonian Empire. It is not only a regime change, it is a change in the whole world order. To understand the magnitude of what's going on, imagine if Adolf Hitler had got his dream of, of, of Nazism conquering Europe and then ultimately the world, and an entire new world order coming on the scene. The turbulence, the chaos, the fear, the unease, the frenzy that people would feel. This is what is happening when they don't know who Cyrus is. They don't know what the Persians are going to be like. They don't know what this is going to mean for them and their little, their little small state of Judah with their capital city of Jerusalem. It is a time of amazing upheaval in their world. And God says this in verse 3 and 4, if we just go back. In this passage, as he sets the table, he said, Who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He's talking about Cyrus the Great. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord. The first and with the last, I am he. He says, you're looking at Cyrus. You're seeing a world order changed. But ultimately, who did this? He says, I, the Lord, the first and the last, from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega, from eternity past to eternity future, he says, I am still superintending the world. 
I am still sovereignly at work. And so in verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 41, God reassures his people that he alone is guiding all events in human history. And secondly, in verses 8 through 20, God reassures his people that they have nothing to fear amid the turbulence that he is stirring up in the history of their day. God is here giving them perspective by giving voice to his prophet. He is using Isaiah's voice to speak to the people of his day to say, you can, in your fear, in your unsettledness, in the the frenzy in which you live, in the chaos of your day, you can have perspective that there is still a sovereign ruler of the universe, that I am still in charge, that I am still a big God, a majestic God, that is superintending your world. What he does through the voice of the prophet is what God does through the voice of the scriptures in our lives. He says to us, continually go to the scripture that God can get bigger. Continually go to the scriptures to remember who it is that you have been introduced to a personal relationship with. It is the cosmic ruling God. It is the creator God who spoke all things out of nothing. He says, remember who I am. Get perspective in the midst of the turbulence. Be in the scriptures simply because it is where God will reaffirm his bigness and his greatness to you. And one of the ways God helps us is to give perspective. He does that not only through his revelation, but he does it through giving us help in the past. It's interesting in this passage where God is trying to say to these people, you know, you can, you can count on me. You can count on me to, to strengthen you. You can count on me to help you by remembering who I've been to you. He says it in verse 9. He says, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you're my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So, therefore, on the basis of verse 9, do not fear that I am intricately involved. Remember so much of the scripture. God says, remember, remember, remember. It's because we forget, forget, forget that he reminds us of things that he has done and ways he has worked. I went through all those passages in the Old Testament. One of them that struck me where the, the people of Israel really found hope in this concept of God helping them is found in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's an amazing scene. It's a scene where the, the Philistines have actually come in, and they're right along the Mediterranean Sea, five big city-states. And they came in, and they, they defeated the Israelites, and they took the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, that which stood as, the, as the, the, the dwelling place of God. And they took it prisoner, and they put it in their, their temple to their god Dagon in the city of Ashdod. And that night, they put it in, and, and the, the next morning, the priests came in. And when they came in, there was the big, huge statue of Dagon lying flat on his face. His hands were cut off, his feet were cut off, and his head was cut off. All that was left was his torso. At the same time, people in the city began to realize over the next few days, all of them were breaking out in tumors, malignant tumors on their body. The whole thing totally weirded out the people of Ashdod 
And so they went to the mucky mucks in Phil- of the Philistines of the five cities, and they say, look, you know, we, we feel it's time for us to now share the Ark of the Covenant with another of our brother city-states. So they took it, and they went to the city of Gath, which is actually the hometown of Goliath. And it went to the city of Gath. Bang! Same deal. All those people are breaking out in tumors, malignant tumors. And so they were willing to share. And they said, look, it's time for us to pass it on to another city. And so they, they sent it on to the third city, the city called, I think it's Akron, Ekron, uh, Ekron. And on the way, it's going to the city of Ekron, and, and the people of Ekron now see it coming, and they all charge outside, and they say, we don't want to turn. <laughs> so they go to the Philistine leaders, and they gather, and they say, what are we going to do with this thing? And they said, you know, let's send it back, but we got to send it back, you know, we got to sort of, uh, 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 you know, appease them, so... Let's send offerings with it. So <laughs> they're making all these offerings. So they send it all along, and it goes back to Israel. But here's the fascinating thing. It arrives back in Israel, and Samuel calls the people of Israel together to come and have a worship experience. And the Philistines hear that they're all gathering out in the middle of a field, and they're vulnerable. So the Philistines decide to attack. And it's just fascinating to me. They were scared of the Ark of the Covenant, but they weren't scared of the God of the Ark of the Covenant. It's exactly like the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you ever watched that movie? You know, the Nazis get the Ark of the Covenant, and, and it's this hokey-pokey, super magic moment where they open the ark and all the whatever demons come out and whatever it is and kills all these guys and they melt like wax. I mean, you, you really don't want to miss this. And, <laughs> and, but the whole idea is that they thought, ooh, 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 the ark is scary, but not it's God. And so they attack and God then thunders, it says in 1 Samuel 5, and throws their army into disarray and the, and the Israelites completely vanquish them. And so Samuel says, guys, we need to remember what God is doing. Give me a giant rock. So they bring out this big giant rock, and they set it up, and he gives it a name, and the name is Ebenezer. And the word Ebenezer is actually two words in the original. Eben means stone. Ezer is our word help. I will eber you, ezer you. I will help you. And he says, we need to remember this because up till now, the Lord has helped us. So every time you're walking through the center of Israel and you're on your way somewhere, I want you to pass this and I want you to remember, God's helped us in the past. I mean, imagine, remember that thing, what he did to the Philistines and their cities and the tumors and the the Dagon on the ground and then the thunders in the field. We need to remember. And, And the whole reason was to just say, see that stone and remember. This is, of course, the value of journaling. It is to just see how God has helped in the past, to remind, as God reminds us of who he is, what he's done, and gives us encouragement of what he's going to do. But one of the things that God did in the present for Israel was just give them perspective. He spoke, and he says, remember what I've done. Remember who you are. And also, In the midst of this turbulent, realize what I'm doing right now. The world seems chaotic and terrifying to you. I'm still the one that is the first and the last. And this Cyrus that you're so scared of, Cyrus the Great, he's not great to me. 
He's just somebody I raised up and I'll put down when he's fulfilled his function. It gave perspective. And part of what God does in order to help us in fearful times is to remind us who he is, what he does. The second thing and the most prominent use of the word help in the Old Testament, talking of God, is God giving us powerful aid. Often they are military scenarios, but it is God giving powerful aid to his people corporately. He's saying, I I will help my people. There were moments in Israel's history where God gave this help in 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 a beautiful, profound way. One of those is 2 Chronicles 32, where Hezekiah is the king in Jerusalem. Be strong. He's talking to the people. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, which were surrounding the city. For there are more with us than with him, which was laughable because he had hundreds of thousands of soldiers out there. But with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. God called Israel to be a light for his glory in the world. They were called to bless the needy, to care for the poor, to bring spiritual truth to people among the nations in their generation. But to do so, they faced obstacles. At times, deep, frightening opposition. As the time in Hezekiah's day, as in the day in which Isaiah is writing, God's people are regularly called to impact their generation to the glory of God by bringing the hope of the gospel to change lives, to heal brokenness. But to do so, God regularly puts his people in places where they're in over their heads. It's just what he does. And the stories we read in the Old Testament that most show the greatness of God and the help of God are where God has allowed his people to be stretched, to be dependent, to be needy, where they do not have the resources within themselves, where we are forced to say he must work because we don't have it, that he must help because we cannot ultimately meet our needs ourselves. God constantly calls his people to step out in faith with him to serve in their particular generation. About four years ago, we started the process to process the idea of building a a significant children's center that would include in it a a large, beautiful event space that could be used for outreach, for adult events and gatherings, and also felt and feel called to have a a ministry to special needs children that would be unique in our area, an area which 90% of special needs families do not go to church anywhere because they cannot be cared for. We felt led to process that. We also have seen God provide a little over two years, two and a half years ago, the property in back of us with the house. We believe God is bringing together a vision of how that all fits together and what that looks like for the future. We're going to be sharing that with you over the next few weeks and months. But underneath it all is the reality that we will need God to do what only God can do. That we will need God to be God and his people to trust him to be big. 
to enable us to give generously and to serve freely. But to me, the moments when God historically always shows up, whether it is in our church's history or in the history of the church or the history of God's people, Israel, it is when he has compelled them to do something which they do not have in themselves the ability to do without him. So, I love the idea of what we're talking about building. I love the vision of it. But quite frankly, as a pastor, what I love most is the thought of us being desperate for God to come through. I love those moments. As I look back in the history, and I've been here a long time. I used to have dark hair and a mustache. And <laughs> but if you ask me what are the salient moments in the history of our church where God has made himself known to people, Every one of them are when God called us to be stretched beyond what we could humanly do, and he showed up. God calls his people corporately to rest in the fact that he is a God of powerful aid, but he also helps people individually. Psalm 10 talks about this. God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. You are the helper of the fatherless. You're the helper of people individually that, are, that, that don't feel the strength in themselves. I would guess there are many of you right there, here this morning. You face personal foes, maybe physical dangers. For many emotional challenges, you hear the voices of condemnation, of accusation of your own inadequacy and insufficiencies. Some of you face acute spiritual challenges, real warfare, fearsome warfare and you feel a wall where you just hunger for God to to break through with things you're longing to see him do and change you were never designed to be a Christian and to live in your own strength or resources and you were never designed in those seasons of fear to face them alone God says, I will help you. And there is a visual in the Old Testament again where a guy was afraid. And God gives this unique picture to us. It's a fellow named Elisha. And Elisha is with uh, his servant. And they're in a little town in Israel. And he's being chased. Elisha is by uh, a bunch of enemies. And they, they're coming to take him prisoner to, to exterminate him, actually. And... They look out one, the next morning, and to their shock, the city has been, little town has been, and it has walls, as most of the towns did, but, but it's been surrounded by the enemy, and they, they have no, and it isn't even their town. It isn't like people are going to fight for them. They look out, and, and, and they're hopeless, and the sir, Elisha's not, but he sees something the, the other guy doesn't, and the other guy's a mess. He's just, he's a wreck. And Elisha turns to him and says to him the very exact phrase in the original that God says to you and I in Isaiah 41.10. He says, do not be afraid. And then he says, he turns from the guy and he turns to God and here was his prayer. He says to the Lord, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And then, of course, if you're familiar with the scene, what he does he enables 
Gehazi's servant to look and to see on the hills all surrounding the surrounding army are what the scriptures describe as the chariots of fire. It was the angelic host that was always there. Just you usually don't get to see the curtain pulled back and take a glance. Elisha was allowed to, and he got to share it with his, his associate. And he says, they're here. They're always here. They're watching. They're protecting. Now, this isn't just, well, you know, I, I'd like somebody a little, I, I'd like God. Not any, Well, he uses his angels. It's, it's God that's providing And, of course, the movie Chariots of Fire is named from that. But the picture is that God provides aid to us. And he he gives us that visual to see that, Lord, I don't see it. I can't see behind the curtain. I just feel the the weight. I just feel the opposition. I I just feel the doors that just seem to not ever be broken through. Maybe God's prayer for us would simply be, that we would see more of what is around us that God has already provided for us to tap into. He also gives, not only does he give us powerful aid, he gives us protection. One of the passages that use the phrase, he helps me, is in Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord's my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. How does he help us? By being our shield. Psalmist also said, which was a favorite phrase of the psalmist, to talk about God being his shield. Psalm 3 is one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. Psalm 3, verse 3, he says, Lord, you're a shield around me. Every side. Every side. You are all the way around me. It's, it's a complete cone. It's a, it's a wall. And nothing gets into me except comes through you. You are protecting that God is providing this. And this is one of the ways he says, you help me. Okay, he protects us. He gives us, provides uh, perspective. He provides powerful aid. How do we tap into that? How do we secure God's help? I'd like to share quickly three things. We are, the first is we are conscious of our need. All of the examples of seeing God work that I've shared and countless others in the Old and New Testament came to people who sensed their need that they recognized they were in over their head. Here's my question to you this morning. Where are you in your life right now? What are you trusting God for right now that if he doesn't come through, you're going to fall flat on your face? Now, I would guess many of you would say, uh, how much paper do you have? But I would guess there are also a number of you that would say, well, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. I mean, that feels a little presumptuous and audacious that I should trust God. If he doesn't come through, fall flat on my face. And what do I I sense I need? And that if God doesn't come through, that, that, that this is going to be the result. I don't really need anything. I'm just going to say it this way. Be careful. If you are, if you do belong to the Lord, be careful. Because there was a church that answered that question exactly that way. It was the church of Laodicea. And Jesus said, you're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. And you say, "Ah, you know, we're, we're rich. Things are put together. And it says, you say, I don't need a thing. And he says, you don't realize you're poor and wretched and blind. 
What is he saying? He's saying the normative sense of a Christian is to feel desperate for God. And if God, if you're not feeling that, maybe you're just out of the game. Maybe you're not, maybe you're, maybe you're too much on the sideline and saying, well, you know, I, things are going good. Why rock the boat? You know, there's no calamity. Uh, why would I want to have anything fearful? Well, I can tell you, if you're really seeking to live to the glory of God and live to the impact of God in this generation, you will find yourself in over your head all the time. That's not a warning. That's an encouragement to realize we are supposed to live by faith. It's a journey of dependence. And he says, if you're not feeling that sense, maybe you need to say, God, awaken my, my, my heart again. That you want to use me in this generation, my weakness, my brokenness. That you want to call me to this, this great endeavor of impacting this generation to your glory. But the starting place, and I would suggest to you, if you don't feel need, you will not see the help of God. You will not see the miraculous intervention. There's not one example in the scripture where God came in and, and did this tremendous thing for people who were sitting around. The, the church of Laodicea didn't have revival meetings. They didn't see people being transformed. No, they were just, things were okay. Don't rock the boat, you know, keep it rolling. And Jesus said, well, have a good time at your church, but I'm going somewhere where people are desperate and they say, God, we're over our heads. What we feel you're calling us to do, we can't do it. But you can. There's a sense of need. There also is a conviction that God is the one that will help. And, and Asa says it this way in First, Second Chronicles 14, 11. He calls to the Lord as God and he says, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the needy. He says, that's me, that's us. We are convinced, secondly, that God is the help that we need. That we realize that there is no other place to really go. That we are designed to live vulnerably, dependently, weak in the strength of God. Old Testament picture, one of my favorites, probably for some of you, is found in Second Chronicles 20, the story of Jehoshaphat when the people are coming, and it says the Moabites and the Edomites and the, what's the other, the Meonites, I mean, all the ites have gathered against him. The whole field is full of mites, and he's looking out, and it says when they saw these armies coming, here's the expression that's used. It says the people and Jehoshaphat were alarmed. That means... They were spooked. They realized, we have no hope in ourselves. So Elijah gathered the gang, and it says he got together with the, the fathers, with their wives and their children and their little ones, and he stood before them, and this is what he prayed. Oh, God, will you not judge them? For we have no foul power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord came on the prophet Jehaziel, and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat knew he did not have the resources, but he was convinced that God did. There are times when you are overwhelmed with opposition. By God's grace, I don't think we live in this state all the time, but some of you are there right now. Some of you are just overwhelmed with the fact that God just doesn't seem to be winning. God doesn't seem to be breaking down the walls. Some of you are, are know exactly what I mean when I say you are experiencing genuine spiritual attack. There are moments like that when you desperately want to be convinced that this is not about your resources, it's about God's. I did not intend to share this story, but I really felt convicted of the Lord in the last couple of days, so I believe he must have a purpose for this for some of you or somebody. In the not-too-distant past for myself, I was facing what I would say was the most acute, painful, spiritual conflict I've ever had in my life. Deep attack, personal, um, very acute spiritual attack. And I got in my car, and I was driving in an evening. And I, it was one of those moments you'll hardly even know what to pray. It was, but I was extremely conscious that with me were spiritual oppositions. I'd say the devil, but I know the devil has probably never bothered me. I mean, he's got bigger fish to fry. I got third-rate guys, which I'm fine with, by the way. Um, I'm not arguing for a promotion. But I, when I'm driving the car, I knew I was not alone. And I don't think we're ever alone. I don't think we're alone this morning. I mean, now everybody's weirded out. But, but, but I knew they were there. And I just, I did something I don't remember having done in this way before. I addressed the demons. And I just said, look, I know you're here. And I know you're listening. So I'm going to say this to you. I'm not strong enough to fight you off. I'm not big enough. I'm not capable to overwhelm, to to not be overwhelmed with your attacks. But you're going to have to listen in because I'm talking to the one that is. And so I talked and I prayed to God and I cried out to God. Why? Because I know I wasn't strong, but I don't have to be. He's not asking us to be big and strong and capable and mighty. He's asking us, To lean into the one that is. And so the second conviction we bring of those who experience the help of God is not only, oh, my life is needy and I'm broken. It's that I have a God who is supernaturally, cosmically ruling the universe. And he has said to me and to you, I will help you. The third thing that we've got to do if we're going to see God's help is we've got to cry out to him. 
All these Old Testament passages where we see God showing up to fight for his people are in response to their cry for him. Peter says it this way in this great New Testament passage, 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God opposes the proud, but he helps the humble. First of all, we look at this triad. It says, first of all, we are conscious of our need. We're the humble. Secondly, it says we are aware that God has the resources to speak to our need. We lean into the mighty hand of God, which is the Old Testament visual of his power, the symbol of his power. And then what do we do? We are casting our anxieties, our cares on him because he cares for us. Brother or sister, you're going to either cast your cares or you're going to care him. And I can tell you, if you cast them, you will find strength and courage. If you carry them over time, you're going to be beset by fear. He says, call out to me, cry out to me. And he gives us an aid in doing this. He says that we can do this in the context of other people. Hearing other people's stories is tremendously powerful in helping us cry out to God. It's interesting to me that in the stories I told this morning, it's exactly what happened, that they benefited by other people's faith stories. The people gained courage through Hezekiah's faith. Elisha's servant needed to see what Elisha saw. Jehoshaphat trusted God, and it lifted the people to trust God as well. Hearing others' stories is a beautiful gift in our journey to live with courage and claim the promises of God. Billy Graham said it this way, courage is contagious. When a brave person takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. I want to go back to the story that was begun on video earlier on, and I'd like to add a three-minute clip to it to share a little more of my interview with the Takamotos, if we could play that now. One of the first women that I met on the school, on the school grounds when we were taking our kids, her name was Tomoko, and her daughter was in our son's class, and we thought they might like each other, so it was just, we would just always tease them. But um, she and I became friends, and she, I invited her to come and try to make jewelry. And she said, I can't do anything with my hands. And I was like, Tomoko, just come and try it. Well, she's been working with us for the whole seven years and wow. is just kind of one of the backbones of what we're doing there now. Well, within the first few months, I said I wanted to do a Bible study for anybody who wanted to. It was during lunch hour, no pressure. And Tomoko was the first one to show up at my door. And she was the first one of that group to choose to follow Jesus. Um, she's a single mom and has seen a lot of pain and suffering. Um, her sister-in-law was washed away in the tsunami, leaving a three-year-old son who she's helping to raise. Um, but Jesus came in and has brought her a lot of hope. and. About a year into that, she 
she came once to Bible study and she said, please pray for my grandma because she's dying in the hospital. And she said, Sue, would you come and tell her about Jesus? And I said, Tomoko, I'm happy to go, but you can tell her. She said, oh, I don't have the confidence. I want you to come. So I said, sure. Well, I'm ashamed to admit this. I forgot about it. Two weeks went by. I was busy. I made excuses. And all of a sudden, two weeks later, Bible study, I said, Tomoko, I'm so sorry I forgot about your grandmother. And she said, Sue, it's too late. She's in a coma and she won't understand anything. I felt sick. I mean, I just, I apologized, but that wasn't enough. Well, I said, please tell me if anything changes and I can even come and pray. And she said, no, my, my mom wouldn't want you there right now. So I, I just started praying, Lord, redeem this. Please redeem this. And a couple days later, she sent me a text and she was like, Sue, she's out of her coma. We don't know how long this will last. And I said, today, we're going today. And I took my coworker and picked up Tomoko and we went to the hospital. And there was this frail 60 pound woman, 93 years old, but she smiled, she had this huge smile and I held her hand. And I said, have you ever heard about Jesus? And she whispered, she said, he's the savior of the world. And I said, how do you know that? And she said, 80 years ago, there was a small church in my community and I would hear them singing songs about the savior of the world. And I asked my friends who I knew went, would you take me to church? She said, well, I have to tell you, I had a club foot and I couldn't walk very well. And my friends were embarrassed to bring me. And she said, I never got inside the door of that church. And I've waited 80 years for somebody to come and tell me about Jesus. I sat there holding this frail hand weeping that God gave me and Tomoko the chance to lead her before the Jesus that she had waited her whole life to know about. And together we prayed and put her hand into the hand of Jesus. And she died maybe two months after that. But I know that there is a worshiper in heaven in part because of God's amazing grace of making beauty from brokenness and what he's doing in this community. You got that right. Here's Sue. And I told her this is a part of a story I love. She messed up. She missed it. But it wasn't about her doing the right thing and getting it right. It was about her saying, Lord, please redeem this. Please work. Please be yourself. Please be big. And God took her flawed efforts to do what God does. His invitation to you this morning is come and join me. Come and walk with me. Come and lean into me. Guys, we don't have this long in this world. I know you say, well, easy for you to say, look at you. But, <laughs> but I've been saying this since I was a kid. Well, once I came to Jesus, I've been, we don't have a long time. But we're given the opportunity to align our lives with Christ and say, Lord, 
I'm coming with my flaws, my fears, my struggles. And he says, great, because it's not about you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Just see your need. Just know that I'm the answer to your need. Just cry out to me in your need. The beautiful thing is that the Lord allows us to do that with other people. He allows us to hear each other's story like that story and just remind us, wow, that's my God. He does those creative things. And it wasn't because they did everything right as missionaries. It's just God. He also does this. He also enables us to have people who will help us by hearing other people's stories, but by also having other people's prayers. There are times in our lives, many of our lives, where you are so weak and so weary and so tired. Maybe you're so under attack. Maybe you're just so tired of disappointment and, and, and trying to hold on with God. You say, I can hardly cry out to God. I can hardly hold on to God. Can I suggest to you that that is why God gives other people, that this is not a solo flight? There are moments in my life, and I would guess in many of yours, when I, I desperately needed other people to come alongside of me, lay their hand on my shoulder, and just pray that I could hear their faith emboldening mine. That their faith became a, a, a surrogate for, for my fear. The beautiful thing is, that is part of what the body of Christ is about. That we pray for each other. And in our prayers, and in our faith, we can lift each other up. I want to close our service this way, this morning. I want to first of all speak to all of you. And say, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then Phil is going to be playing the piano. And I would ask you to not leave this room until you've taken time to contemplate this, this study today. What is God saying to you this morning? Is he saying, get off the sidelines and, 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 and really embrace me? Or is he saying, you know, you who are, are overwhelmed with, you need to give this to me. You're trying to carry it, and you're finding out you don't have the stuff to do this, but I do. I'm also going to allow and encourage those of you that are here that would say, I would love to have somebody pray with me. Yeah, I got stuff I need to give to the Lord, but I hardly even know what to say. I'm weary. I'm, I'm needy. Well, there are a number of people that I've already talked to that are waiting, and this morning when I pray, they're going to come up and they're just going to be standing here and they're just prayer friends to pray. They're people that pray. They don't need to know your whole story. They'll probably like to hear your first name. If you want to tell them why you've come and you want to, what you want to ask prayer for, great. If you want to say, I, I hardly even know what to pray. Would you just pray with me? Then come and let them, let, let you hear them speaking to the Father in your behalf. So here's how we're going to close. I'm going to pray. Phil's going to be playing. Folks are going to be up here by the time I'm done praying. 
And wherever you are, I just encourage you to come. And just, they'll be looking for you and they'll just pray with you. For those of you that don't come, man, use this as a time to say, God, what do you have for me today? What are you saying to me this morning? And if nothing else, where you are, pray for the people that came up. Lord, we look to you today. We glory in the things that you are allowing in our lives that put us over our head. We glory in the fact that you do not call us to be strong. You call us to, in our weakness, allow you to be strong. Lord, I love the picture of the body being one where we benefit by the prayers and the faith of others in our time of weariness. So, Lord, grace us today with the voice of the Spirit speaking to us personally. If that's to come and be prayed with, Lord, don't let them sit there. If that's to prompt people today to renew a desire to make a difference by your grace in this gender, then God, stir their hearts. Lord, in this moment, in this place, at this time, I ask that your spirit would be speaking into lives right now. In Jesus' name, amen. If God is prompting you to just come and get, come up. Just come and pray. If not, stay where you are and, and hear what God wants to say to you. But I hope many of you will come and allow others to pray with you this morning.